you've likely seen the AT and AT and T commercials. Just okay is not okay. I think there's some of the most clever and humorous commercials to to come out in a few years. Um, in one of them, a, a couple is sitting in a hospital room, and the the husband or the the man is on the bed, the hospital bed, um, apparently about to have some operation, and the nurse is in there with them. And the, the gal asks the nurse, so, so have you ever worked with Dr. Francis? And she says, yeah, he's okay. And then Dr. Francis comes around the corner and very loudly, very baldly says, guess who just got reinstated? Well, not officially. <laughs> he then looks at the, the patient on the bed and he says, are you nervous? The guy's like, yeah. Doctor says, me too. Don't worry about it. We'll figure it out. And the voice comes in. Just okay is not okay. Um, there's, there's another one where a guy is translating Dutch to English for apparent business merger. And uh, the Dutch side asks the translator to tell the English side that, that they're flexible. And the translator says, this man is very bendy. And the Dutch side asks the, the translator to tell the English side that they, they really need this merger. And the translator says, he needs a hug. And then the, the two people get up and awkwardly hug. And the translator's like, it's happening. Just OK is not OK. Well, in both of these situations, somebody that should be trustworthy and reliable at what they're doing isn't. They clearly haven't proven themselves in their profession, haven't been sufficiently tested and tried and come out on the other side proven and capable and competent. They're just okay. And clearly in these situations, just okay is, is not okay. The fact is that we trust those who have a track record of diligent, honest work. And part of how we gain this trust in people is, is, through, is as they're tested and, and tried, as they go through tests and trials, it reveals that they're competent. It reveals that they know what they're doing. Whether that be the rigors of uh, college or grad school or the, just the experience over time of being on a job or just the character um, displayed of honesty and diligence and care. builds our trust in people is not just that they've had any and all experience, but that they've, these experiences have tested them and tried them, and they've come out the other side proven. Their character and their competency has passed the test and been proved to be genuine. There's a popular saying that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Uh, the idea being that uh, difficulties uh, make you stronger, make you better. It's not exactly true. Uh, a bit more accurate would be to say that what doesn't kill you can make you stronger. Because it's not guaranteed. It, it matters how we respond to difficulties, to trials. Uh, the doctor in the first example had apparently met some trial in losing his license, but it clearly didn't bring him out the other end more competent. If anything, 
the exact opposite. You could lose your medical license 15 times and have lots of experience, but that doesn't prove that you should be practicing medicine. And it doesn't help people trust you. Well, when it comes to that which is most important in our lives, our faith in God, our faithfulness towards God, a similar principle applies. Tests and trials can strengthen our faith and our faithfulness. Tests and trials can give us valuable maturity. And the fact is that God desires this for us. God isn't merely pleased that we just get in, squeak in the door of salvation. He wants us to bring us into greater maturity and steadfastness and godliness and joy in him. And so he ordains trials and tests for us to go through. This is attested in many places in scripture, but one of the places that we find um, find this is in James, which we're going to begin today in the first chapter of James. We're going to cover a couple different sections. We're going to cover the first four verses of James 1, and then we're going to jump to verse 12 and go 12 through 18, because both of these sections talk to us about enduring trials. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles or your Bible app, James chapter 1. We'll start with just verse 1. It will give us a kind of an introduction to, to the book and help us with some context. It says, James, the son of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. So before we get into trials, just a few words about the book of James and what we're reading here. We're going to do a quick who, when, and what. Got that? Who, when, what. First, who. Who Who are we talking about here? Well, the author is identified as James. Now, there were a lot of James. This was a common name in the first century. Uh, even in the Bible, Jesus has two disciples named James. However, pretty much everyone agrees that the James that is writing this book is Jesus' brother, James. And one of the reasons that this is thought to be so is that he was the most well-known James in the first century, as, as we'll see, and uh, any other James would have likely identified himself as not James, Jesus' brother, uh, because this was the most well-known James, and he was writing out to the, to the churches. You may recall that early in Jesus' ministry, uh, we're told that Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him, and likely this included James as well. So we get kind of a snapshot of early on in James' life. He's not quite sure of, of his brother, um, as probably all of us would be if we had grown up with Jesus, and then he starts saying and doing the things that he does. However, James comes to be uh, a leader, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, uh, he comes to be a part of the Jerusalem Council, which we read about in Acts 15, where the, the church uh, wrestles with uh, the, the many Gentiles coming into faith and, and what that means. And then Paul even refers to James in one of his letters as a pillar of the faith. So he's highly thought of, highly respected um, among the early Christians. Early church history tells us that James was martyred for his faith. He was stoned to death by the scribes and Pharisees, so some uh, Jewish religious leaders because he wouldn't renounce his um, commitment to Jesus. But beyond these details, we learn quite a bit about him from how he opens the letter here. 
So he says, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it was a very common way for New Testament authors to say servant of God. Uh, You find this in other letters of Paul and and such. Uh, But James is unique in adding and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you think about it, James is identifying, confessing his own brother to be first Christ, that is the the Messiah, the Savior, the kingly to come and save God's people, but then Lord, which means master or owner. Imagine the convincing that would have to happen for you to refer to one of your siblings who you grew up with and you as his dedicated servant, even slave. Imagine the convincing that would have to happen for you to believe that your sibling is in fact God in the flesh, for you to worship him as God, which is what James is confessing here. Something happened, obviously, between the time when James was unsure of and unbelieving in his brother and as he begins to write this letter, says a s- calls himself a servant of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so even though James has some credentials as an authority figure in the church, even though he's the brother of Jesus, notice that he identifies himself, he opens up, not by those things, but by his faith, faith in and submission to Jesus. He locates his identity and his worth in the identity and worth of Jesus. Continuing on with the, the who, who is James now writing to? Well, he says, the twelve to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. So these are the Christian Jews scattered among the nations outside of Jerusalem because of persecution. They're living all, all over the place. These are Jews who have come to believe that Jesus is both God and Savior. And this then leads to the question, when? When is this all happening? When is Well, James is one of the earliest, if not the earliest, New Testament book to be written. Uh, He is probably writing in the mid-40s in the first century, which puts him a mere 10 to 15 years after Jesus died. This is not very long after Jesus. And this early date, along with the content of the letter, are further evidence that he is writing to a primarily Jewish audience. Because at this early time... Still largely a Jewish religion, comprised of Jews who had been that Jesus was the promised Messiah and had come to, to worship him as both God and Savior. And then finally, what, what is this? What are we reading here? What kind of writing is this? Well, a, f- a few quick things. First, it's a letter. But it's not a, it's not a specific letter. It's a very general letter. We're not told very specific details about any people or situations. It's written to the church at large. But the fact that it is a letter helps us to understand that there's a context for it. There are specific situations um, among his writing about. And so he is choosing topics based on that. Secondly, it's a kind of wisdom literature. So in the Old Testament, we have wisdom literature like the Proverbs. James is kind of like, in some ways, like a New Testament Proverbs. Uh, as 
from one topic to another very quickly without any like logical sequence between. It's thing from one topic to another. And then third, James depends heavily on Jesus' teachings. Although he doesn't do this by exactly quoting the Gospels, so this is further evidence that James is very er, written very early. He's not depending on the written Gospels. He's depending on his actual knowledge of and experience with Jesus. He is, uh, as one commentator says, very just soaked in the atmosphere and the specifics of Jesus' teaching. And he can kind of just reflect them unconsciously. Okay, so that gives us a little context as we're going to be spending uh, the next 15 or so weeks in this book. But James does, doesn't spend much time introducing himself or introducing the letter. He quickly jumps into the bulk of it. So let's do the same. Two, we get into the topic of trials. We'll read two to four. Count it all joy, my brother, of various kinds, for you know of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing so topic here trials that's the big topic for today what are trials what is this we're talking about here well, perhaps the most obvious answer is that trials are something that are difficult or unpleasant. The, the words of the author of Hebrews are obvious to us. He writes, for the moment, all discipline, and that's, that could be translated training, all discipline or training seems painful rather than pleasant. Trials are unpleasant. They seem painful. verses 2 and 3, between trials and testing of your faith. Uh, James is using these interchangeably to refer to the same thing. A trial for a Christian is anything that tests your faith, something that stretches you, presses, requires more of you, makes you uncomfortable, rips you out of your ease and comfort, forces you to focus more diligently. You can think of athletes or perhaps military recruits as they, as they train. If, if you want to be great at any sport, you have to train for hours and hours, and often that training is very uncomfortable. If, if you want to build muscle, you have to, it, it's uncomfortable to do that. You have to break them and press them if you want to build up endurance, you have to push yourself to, le- to, to degrees that, that are very uncomfortable, to say the least. There's no great athlete that has never been in excruciating pain, no matter how much natural talent they might have. Similarly, the trials that God ordains for his people are often painful. They, they require something of us. They require more of us than we would perhaps prefer. Uh, we see God doing this throughout Scripture. We see God ordaining trials for his people. So wh- one example is in Deuteronomy 8. God is speaking to his people Israel just after they've um, endured the 40 years in the desert. They're about to enter the promised land. And God says this in Deuteronomy 8 verse 2, 
you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. Actually, Moses is speaking here, but about God. That he might humble you, testing you, there's the word, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So here, God was testing his people's obedience and devotion, and the means of doing this was by letting them hunger, removing the normal means of sustenance and provision, and requiring them to trust God in a, in a more, in a more, um, in a daily way, in a way that they weren't used to. They had to trust God to provide every day. And God does similar things for us. God ordains various trials, as James says, for his people. Um, these come both inwardly as we wrestle with fears and, and frustrations and doubts and questions and confusion, wrestle with our emotions, wrestle with our own sin, Trials also come outwardly, of course, as we are um, tested by pain and loss and suffering and just circumstances that we wouldn't have chosen for ourselves as others harm us and sin against us. In just thinking about and looking over this church, I am readily aware that many of you have gone through or are currently still going through very difficult trials. Difficult circumstances that you would never have chosen for yourself. Relational hardships. Family dynamics. Inner battles. Dealing with the past. Dealing with emotions that are hard to understand and control. For the moment, all discipline or all trials seem painful rather than pleasant. So trials are unpleasant. We can admit that this However, what does James say? How does he begin? Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. I mean, it seems just asinine. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Why would James say this? How can he say this? Well, as he goes on, he gives the answer. And the answer is that trials have a good purpose. Trials are meant for a good end. So consider the logic between verses 2 and 3. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds... For you know, so there's the key phrase, this is why you can count it all joy. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be complete, lacking in nothing. So the reason we can count trials as all joy is not because the trial itself is enjoyable. 
course we know that. But because of what trials have the potential to produce in us, for us, and through us, trials have great potential. Testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Uh, Paul in Romans 5 similarly says we rejoice in sufferings. So apparently it's not only James who has discovered that you can rejoice in trials and suffering. Paul says we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. So the idea here is not just that we would grin and bear it and just barely escape through the other side of a trial. It's not just about getting it through and so just numb yourself, find some distractions and diversions so you don't have to really think about what you're going through, just make it through the other side. No, there's more going on here. The idea is that the experience of trials and suffering would produce steadfastness and faith and faithfulness and character in us. Both James and Paul exhort us to actually embrace trials as opportunities for good and necessary growth. And this gets back to what, what we said earlier, that God's purpose for us is, is not simply to, to save us and then, then be done with us. Our purpose in life is not saved or get in the door of eternal life. That's not the sum total of what God is up to. There is value in our faith and faithfulness being tested and verified, confirmed, and made more vibrant. There's value in growing in our dependence on God, in our confidence in God's goodness, in our joy in God, in our satisfaction in God. And again, kind of with the examples we began with, we know this principle in life. We have esteem for those who have been proven, especially those who have been proven and tried and in, through enduring difficulty. Those who have been made wise and gentle and because of trials. I think of those who have lived in, in or near poverty. Those who have suffered the loss of, of loved ones, of spouses, children, siblings, parents at a young age. Those who have experienced abuse of various kinds, those who have dealt with trauma, those who have battled addictions, those dealing with the weakening of the body and mind. All of these things and more, are, of course, are very difficult. Of course, are unpleasant. All of them remind us we live in a, a, a world that is deeply affected by the fall, that there is evil almost everywhere we turn. And yet, in God's providence, these very things have the potential to produce in us steadfastness, to, to deepen our trust and dependence in God, even to increase our joy and satisfaction in Him. Does this make trials easy? Of course not. 
Does it answer all the questions we have about our specific trials? No. But this knowledge that God has purpose, good purpose, in and through our trials does enable us to be steadfast. Does enable us to endure patiently all that comes our way. And we have to be clear that this outcome, this positive outcome, is not guaranteed. Trials don't automatically mature us or teach us steadfastness. It matters how we respond. And so jump ahead now to verse 12. Still on the topic of trials, James says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. God has promised to those who love him. In other words, there are those who do not remain steadfast. There are those who are away from God when testing comes. It's not merely experience or hardship or age that makes us wise and mature. You can have faced many trials and tests and still be very immature. It matters how we respond. But James says that those who have faced trials and tests and remain steadfast, who have learned patience and endurance and humility through them, James says they are blessed. They are, this could be translated fortunate, which again, just like fortunate. Blessed are those who endure steadfastly through trials. They are fortunate. They are recipients of favor and blessing from God. So how can we be these kind of people? How can we count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds? Well, for one... The very simple answer is that we must look beyond the trial, look beyond what we currently feel, what we currently, what is going on in our minds, and see what God intends to do through, through it. Both the producing of godly character now and the receiving of the crown of life, as James says. Um, Peter also writes of this. He says, we are grieved by various trials so trials grieve us. We can be honest. But then, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the goal is that our faith would genuine, confirmed, and that that would Jesus. So again, we set our eyes on this outcome of God's purpose in our trials. But it's not enough to merely set our eyes on it. First and foremost, we have to desire that outcome. Right? If that outcome is not something that we desire, it's not going to give us much staying power steadfastness. If you want to be an NFP 
you have no desire to be an NFL player, you're not going to make it through all of the training camps and the, the weightlifting and the strengthening and all of that. You won't. If you want to be a, a pilot or a lawyer or a doctor, no, sorry, if you don't want to be any of those things, you're not going to get through the school and the training and the to meet that goal. You have to desire, at least in part, the end results. It matters here that James is writing to Christians because James is writing to those who have already been convinced at least somewhat of the glory and the goodness and grace of God and that it is worth living for him. And that, that the work that God intends to do in their lives and has already begun to do is good and worth it. We will not self-will ourselves into rejoicing in trials. I mean, maybe you can trick your mind briefly, but it's not going to last. If we don't think God is great and a life lived for him is worth it. We might desire God to deliver us from trials. Plenty of people desire that. Oh, God, you can help me get out. You can make So we'll briefly turn to him to help us out. But we don't desire what God wills to do in us, to produce in us through the trials. And so we must first have our view of and our disposition towards God radically altered. We must be convinced that God is both great and all of the work that in all things together for good, even our trials, we must be convinced that God intends good even through this. In other words, we must be saved. We, we, we must be regenerated by God's Spirit if we are to rejoice in our how do we do this? We look at Jesus. We look at Jesus sacrificed for our sins, risen, conquering death in the grave, and we grasp him by faith. The, the, the gospel of God's grace in Jesus, the gospel of God's grace in Jesus has the power as we grasp onto it to radically change our hearts. It is not just a, a belief that we adopt and, and then we go forth. God radically changes our hearts by the Spirit and we have a new view of God, disposition towards God. And so James can call because Christians increasingly desire the work that God is doing. In other words, we as Christians, if Christ is in us, if we have grasped him by faith, we should be increasingly discontent to be untested and untried. We should desire a faith that is strengthened and proved our joy and contentment shouldn't be wrapped up in an easy, pain-free, trial-free life, but in the strengthening and maturing of our faith in God and dependence on God.
Now, having said all of that, an objection might be raised. And that is this. Trials and tests that come our way that we are told that God even ordained one testing us can often be incredibly evil. That at least have many evil elements clear harm, oppression and the like. We wonder what is God's relationship? God tempting us towards sin fail? And James anticipates this in the last verses. He says, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Now, this requires a bit of an explanation Greek word for both temptations in this whole chapter one, temptations and trials. Word can mean determines what it means, and it's clear he's changing to talking about temptations specifically. But right here is a transition, and so it might read something like this: Let no one the topic that James has just been discussing in the first opening verses and also in let no one say when he is meeting a trial, I am being tempted by God. So whatever the nature of the trial, whatever it may imply about God and his purposes, whatever sin we might feel because of the trial, let us not come to the conclusion that God is setting us up to fail. That God is tempting us towards sin. That is not God's purpose in our trials. As James goes on, continuing verse 13, for God cannot be tempted. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So God's purpose is never to lead us into failure or sin. God does not will that we fall into temptation. In fact, Jesus tells us specifically to pray against, against lead us not into temptation. His intentions for us are never evil or malicious. He's not working against us, cheering against us, hoping that we fail. Neither is he merely passive in our trials, just like distant let's let's see how they no god is fighting with us and for us especially as we meet and in the book of hebrews we have a high priest who is unable with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. In other words, we have Jesus who can sympathize with our weaknesses, not just because he sees them from afar, but because he came into the world as a human and experienced life as a human. 
and he himself was tempted. Same word. Same Greek word. Day Nortland writes about this, about God. He says, God's love is great because it surges forward all the more when the beloved is threatened, even if threatened as a result of its own folly. We understand this on a human level. An earthly father's love rises up within when he sees his child accused or afflicted. And then hear this, even if justly accused or deservingly afflicted, renewed affection boils up within. Even when our trial is primarily the result of our own sin and folly. God doesn't leave us to figure it out for ourselves. us to sin. Rather, the temptation to sin that we may encounter in the midst of trials comes about by our own sinful desires. Far from bringing us any evil gifts, God is the oh, will only bring us good gifts. Last verses, verse 16. Do not Or shadow of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Should be a of his This is what God is doing the whole of our Christian lives, right? God is convincing us over and over again of his goodness. God is convicting the various patches of our hearts and minds that doubt his goodness and convincing us that he is good through and through. And in this, we must continually look to the cross. The, the cross is where we see God's goodness most clearly, most emphatically, most extensively. Um, Paul speaks of the immeasurable riches of God's grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And then says that God's purpose in salvation is to display these riches. God is in the business of convincing us of his immeasurable grace over and over and over again. That's what he is doing. And he's displaying it to the world. And the astounding truth, if we are to believe the scriptures, is that trials are not, are not, God is not taking a break from that in trials, but is actually in God's providence, not to diminish his not because the trial itself is good, but because of what God intends to do through it. Through our trials, God is that is, he's removing from us that which is not good, 
Every part of us that doesn't trust in God, doesn't depend on God, doesn't delight in God, all of our fears and doubts and anxieties. And he's producing a, a final product that is, that is and God glorifying. As we learn to confidently trust in his presence and goodness, as we are satisfied in him more, as we rest in him, as we love him. This is what God is doing. I pray that God would remind us of this as we face various trials, that we would be able to, by faith, trust that God is still good, that God is still sovereign, that God is actually bringing about good through our trials. And that by his spirit in us, we would desire this good more than we desire a comfortable and easy but self-godless life. Let's pray.